Hi there, this is Andy Tillerson from The Tangent speaking, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hey everybody, welcome to Michael's Record Collection, episode number 66. Very excited about this episode because I get to talk to Andy Tillerson, the founder of The Tangent, progressive rock band, uh, been around since the early 2000s, and Andy's been in it a lot longer than that, but uh, they've got a new album out, just dropped on June 10th, called Songs from the Hard Shoulder. Andy was kind enough to tell me a little bit about the making of that album, uh, the stories behind some of the songs, and uh, we also talked about his career, uh, and we kind of got into some of the details of some of the great songs that The Tangent has released over the years we also talked about andy's love of yeses close to the edge and how that became a thing and uh, just all kinds of stuff so great stuff with andy before we get to that interview i want to remind you that you can follow me on social media at mike's records on twitter and michael's record collection on youtube facebook and instagram go to michaelsrecordcollection.com and you can find out how to sign up for my free newsletter comes every week no charge to you in your email box no spamming and you get a a nice newsletter every week so it's a little bit different than the podcast a little bit different from the videos so uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that and uh, if you want to support this it's very easy just go to patreon.com slash michael's record collection and for as little as two dollars a month you can be a patron of the arts and support independent writing and independent podcasting. All right, uh, let's get to that interview, but I do want to mention I cleaned it up as best I could, but there were some times when Andy got uh, lost deep in thought and uh, sat back and got a little bit far from his microphone. So uh, let's get to that interview with Andy Tillerson. Here we go. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited. My guest this edition is Andy Tillerson from The Tangent, new album coming out uh, June 10th. In fact, when this drops, it will have just uh, just been released. And uh, Andy, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Michael. And thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, that's lovely. The Tangent, uh, Songs from the Hard Shoulder. This is, uh, I believe, the 12th studio album? It is. Um, 12 albums and 20 years. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, I started off as a as a kind of a middle-aged guy, um, and and I'm still a middle-aged guy, uh, <laughs> just at a different end of middle age. Yeah, it's um, it's been quite a thing. A lot of a lot of my favourite bands never made it as far as twelve albums, and um, I had very very little idea in um, what was it twenty twenty uh, two zero zero two two thousand and two <laughs> that. Um, that uh, we'd be uh, still working in 2022. It's, you know, it's quite bizarre, really. It was just, it's often told stories that it was really just an album that was um, uh, a one-off, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it did so well. It was a, an opening for a, for a future career that was, you know, very difficult to not follow. And, yeah, uh, yeah so here we are, 12 yeah. albums. The music that died alone. So 
what was a one-off became a 12-off so far and counting. Uh, 12 off so far. And I've got no <laughs> intention of stopping, as it were. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're still at it. Mm. That's great. Well, uh, fans of progressive rock and jazz rock will be very excited to hear that. Uh, I want to go back in time with you real quick, if we can. And one of the first questions I always ask my guests is, what was your first favorite record? Uh, well, uh, uh, it depends how far we're really going back. Uh, but, um, you know, my favorite record, my very first favorite record, I suppose, was Peter and the Wolf, um, the old uh, Prokofiev thing. Uh, it's mm -hmm. uh, just a fantastic story, um, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that I think the fact that I loved that story so much and the way the musical instruments represented the different animals and the different characters in the story, that was, you know, how I, it was the beginnings of me beginning to appreciate the idea of musical storytelling, which is something I've tried to do ever since, if you know what I mean. Um, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it was a, it was quite a beautiful thing. Uh, Rock music, well, I mean, of course, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a very classically, uh, classical music influenced household. My mum was a big lover of music, mm -hmm. of course, mainly classical. We had a couple of sneaky Glenn Miller albums uh, from, uh, from when my mum and dad used to go dancing together. Mm -hmm. uh, but like uh, <clears throat> most of it was classical. And, uh, you know, so I grew up on very much on her taste, which was sort of like, you know, Brahms, Beethoven, Bach. Bach was huge in our house. Uh, mm -hmm. Mendelssohn, Schubert, Schumann, um, Debussy, Mozart. But uh, she never quite got Stravinsky, which I grew to like myself uh, later on. And um, then, of course, I, uh, I just discovered uh, progressive rock music when I was age 12, um, hearing close to the edge, strangely enough, at my house because somebody else came to our house and played a copy of Close to the Edge, and I heard it from outside the outside the room. I wasn't allowed in the room at the time. It was a mm -hmm. meeting, uh, it was a vicarage. Uh, you know, my my parents were in the uh, were in the church, and uh, there was some kind of young persons Bible discussion group going on. They were allowed to bring records. They put the records on. And I heard yes for the first time there, um, close to the edge. And uh, that was a bit of an epiphany for me. And uh, so I guess that rock music, uh, yeah, close to the edge was a really big one for me, along with uh, Pajama Rama by Roxy Music, which was the first single I bought. And the first album I bought was um, Close to the Edge. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, uh, you sort of went from the classical to the modern classical. Uh, yeah, I think it was um, it was all to do with the fact that it's this whole, to me, the whole point of the music was I'd been brought up listening to the stories that were in the music. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whether that be Beethoven's Pastoral, whether it be Pictures as an Exhibition by Mussorgsky and everything like the stories that were inherent in the music as started on me by Peter and the Wolf, you know, 1960s pop music which was, of course was around at the time wasn't providing anything like that um mm -hmm. it was providing something different which of course now i love um but 
you know, when I was a, a young, a young, a young boy, uh, yeah, I saw the Beatles on the Royal Variety performance and stuff like that on the TV, and and all I could think was it doesn't doesn't go anywhere. Where's the story? <laughs> you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 and with a love like that, you know, it can't be bad. You know what? You know, you should be glad. Whatever. It just it just didn't sort of like take me anywhere. Yeah. Um, and clearly, um, yes, arrived just in time to kind of electrify those stories and uh, take me on the same kind of journey that classical music could do. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it didn't take very long for me to discover the other bands um, like ELP and, and Tangerine Dream, Mike Oldfield, uh, the people who could take you away for 20 minutes out of your life, you went somewhere else. And, um, you know. Yeah. And, and ever since that first happened, that's essentially what I've wanted to do with the rest of my life, which is why, you know, I spend a lot of time focusing on um, longer songs, if you know what I mean, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> the it, It's interesting that you... You put it that way it takes you somewhere else takes you on a trip it's it's almost like a musical narnia if you will that uh, some of these bands can take you to it's interesting also that you you gravitated toward being told stories and i wonder what you made of the inscrutable lyrics of john anderson or was that part of the appeal trying to figure out what john was trying to say i you know i think that um john anderson uh, john anderson's lyrics are among my favorites that I've ever heard. I mean, with me being um, a very realist lyricist uh, involved in sort of politics and current affairs, a lot of people would assume that John Anderson wasn't going to be my cup of tea, um, mm -hmm. but far from it. I actually think his lyrics are, well, they're not, they're, they're not, they, the, the thing is, is that everybody expects them to mean something in English. Um, they're English words, certainly, and they're derived from the English language. But what John Anderson's writing isn't in the English language. It's it's in a different language, which is the language of music itself. And he just uses key words and sounds and everything that that can open up um, little doorways. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. um, I think the the first time the first time it really, really hit me, just how much it moved me was, you know, was that very first album and the, and the line, on the hills we view the silence of the valley, called to witness cycles only of the past. You know, that when I heard that, you know, I, I still, I still wouldn't be able to write an analysis of exactly what it means in English. All I know is that like those lines just make me feel wonderful inside i'm a great lover of the countryside I, I love hills i live in the hills and i love the silence of valleys in fact i go to write my songs in valleys um to to get the kind of inspiration i don't take instruments or anything i just go and sit there and partially because of the fact that you know when you're constructing a story a valley is you're sitting in a story. It has a beginning, which you can see it to the up to the left. You can see where the, the river might begin and flows down. And the valley mm -hmm. widens and goes out, maybe to the sea, maybe to the plain. And you're in the middle of this valley, and there's this whole story happening around you. And so, where better to write a story? And and I guess that you know that that line of John's um, all those years ago. Um, 
you know, planted something there. And it's the same with, you know, getting over overhanging trees, uh, which is in tails and topographic oceans, and of course, dawn of a light lying between the silent and salt sources, you know, where I, I have no idea <laughs> what is meant in English by that. But all I know is it, it sends shivers down my spine when I hear it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, fantastic ability to uh, uh, you know and it, his voice becomes one it, it becomes a human focus in the but it's still part of the actual instrumentation and uh, and i get a similar vibe uh, i always describe when i'm listening to uh, pfm um as it, it's a kind of lyricist's day off <laughs> <laughs> uh because I, i'm kind of you know when i listen to music i do listen to the lyrics and take a lot of notice of what they're saying and uh, when it comes to uh, PFM, I don't understand a word they're saying. And therefore, I can have a day off. I don't have to sort of like sit there, analyse the lyrics. I can just sort of like let it become. I love the beauty of the Italian language and the way they, the way they express it and the voice and everything. Uh, I know that PFM did sing in English as well, but I haven't got any of those records. I only have the Italian ones. Um, because uh, you know, somehow that's the magic of the Italian bands is that you get this whole experience without having to even try to understand what the words are about. You know? Yeah. So sure. Balancing the ledges, plowing through the books. The new crew knows the solution. It's not as painful as it looks. Tell me about your transition from gold frankincense and disc drive to parallel or 90 degrees to the tangent. What was that sort of like for you? And, and what were those musical years? You know, sort of break those down for me. Well, um, essentially, um, you know, it's, it's, been, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a long pass uh, because, you know, I was not a trained musician. Um, and, you know, I have no music qualifications or anything. I can't even read music. So, like, um, I loved all these guys that we're, we're talking about, you know, the progressive rock bands, and I loved all the classical stuff and everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when it came to leaving school at that point when, you know, I'd, I'd already decided I want to be in a band and, you know... Uh, People like Rick Wakeman, Hugh Banton, Keith Emerson, Edgar Furosa had sort of like impressed on me the fact, Andy, you've got to be in a band. <laughs> um, I had no real plan of how I was going to do that because I could play. I could play a few bits of Mozart and stuff. Uh, I could bash out Silver Machine on a piano. Uh, <laughs> but like, um, you know, uh, I wasn't kind of prog rock standard. 
and, and therefore, you know, punk rock was a huge thing for me because it, it was uh, it was a sort of it was a way into how you um, you could get a job. You know, I, I, I got a job with a band. You know, they gave me a, uh, and I was able to play and start learning how to be on stage, how to manage my keyboards, how to how to get involved. Uh, the, the guy. The guy who was the leader of that band, a guy called Dale Hargreaves. It was a new wavy band. It wasn't sort of straight out and out punk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was a very competent songwriter and he taught me a lot about songwriting, which uh, I, I use every day of my life. I use what he taught me. And sadly, he died in 86 as a very young man. Uh, and like, uh, so, you know, growing up through that, then then my band sort of like gradually developed more and more and became, you know, they they had a sort of like a, they weren't sort of neo prog or anything. They were they were sort of music that acknowledged my influence as a progressive rock music without necessarily, um, you know, going for going for it. As <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you had. Um, GFDD was, of course, I had, a, I had a band that you could have called New Romantic, which was called New Opera. Uh, and uh, in that band, we really did learn how to play and get our chops together. Then I started running a recording studio and I started running this recording studio in Leeds. And we specialised in punk, thrash metal and... Uh, you know, real hardcore stuff. And particularly from the ultra-political, anarcho-punk uh, background. And, uh, and that's where I uh, started working occasionally with a band called Chumbawamba, who later went on to have a huge hit called mm -hmm. I Get Knocked Down, I Get Back <laughs> Up Again, that one, you know. Um, I, I really rated them, and I still really do. And I think it's a travesty that their entire career seems to be ref represented to most people by that one song when they had a 40-year career. Um, but they were so politically committed. And, and what they said, I, I found myself in such agreement with. I, I wanted to do this. And it was so difficult to sort of like, to even think about starting a band that was kind of punky, but based around the synthesizer player, you know, because uh, <laughs> you know, it was all about guitars was, was most of the stuff around then. Yeah. So, it, you know, we did, we formed this band, uh, Gold Frankincense and Disc Drive, and yeah, it, it, it inevitably had, it had my influences all over it and other people in the band's influences, of course, you know, and, and mine were very much of sort of like, hardcore metal prog um punk all, all came together in that in that particular band mm -hmm. which i'm still very proud of parallel or 90 degrees which happened um in the 90s uh that was that was definitely you know uh a move a little bit more towards regular progressive rock music by this point you know uh, PO90 started at round about the same time as Porcupine Tree. We were we were working the same places here in in the UK as mm -hmm. them, um, and uh, for some reason, you know, uh, PO90 was kind of well well respected, but you know, just didn't have the um, 
didn't have the selling power that uh, that Porky's had. And uh, you know, and then whilst whilst doing the, the PO90 stuff, I just ended up doing a side project, and the side project was very very proggy. I was kind of having fun doing some proper prog, mm -hmm. and um, that turned into the basics for the music that died alone by the tangent. In a That got heard thanks to a guy called Ian Oakley by uh, by Roy Nastolt, and uh, we put together this band, you know, um, as a one-off, and uh, <laughs> it outsold all the other records I'd ever made in my life in four weeks. <laughs> wow! Is that why it was called the Tangent? Is because you went off on this sort of side oh, yeah, project? Yeah, that's it. I mean, it was a it was a pun on the other name on the other band. You know, yeah. parallel or ninety degrees. That's sort of you know fairly mathematical sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, so okay, well here's a tangent from it. So <laughs> in the end, the tangent became the main line. You know, and uh, I, I still miss PO ninety um, uh, because I think that probably. You know, that was that was the band that should have been a success for me, but wasn't, you mm -hmm. know. And in you know, I, I think people probably have started <laughs> to notice that gradually the tangents finding its way back to being PO90 after after a after a long time. I think that's 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 what's happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I mentioned, 12th studio album, this follows up 2020's Auto Reconnaissance. And um, as I understand it, this uh, the current incarnation of The Tangent, yourself, Andy Tillerson on keyboards and vocals, Theo Travis on sax and flute, Luke Matchin on guitar, uh, Jonas Reingold on bass, and Steve Roberts on drums. The list of former members of The Tangent is incredibly long and incredibly distinguished why so many lineup changes over the years is it just availability is it you wanting to go in new directions uh what can you tell me about the the changes that the band has gone through over the years um you know it's uh, the, it depends who you ask actually uh but like uh from from my point of view um the band came into existence as a kind of a little bit of a kind of side project for me Mm -hmm. But also a side project for Royness, side project for Jonas, and everything. And everybody in the band to start with was also involved in something else, um, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, consequently, 
you know, we, we kept on going around and we just kept on picking up people to replace people who weren't available, but they were in the same sort of situation. And, you know, the world's changed uh, big time. I mean, you know, we, the days of a band being a band all the time, you know, I mean, like, for example, Gentle Giant, you know, they, they didn't spend their time playing in other bands. They spent their time playing in Gentle Giant and that's what they did. But mm -hmm. musicians can't afford to do that anymore uh, because, you know, uh, unless you are at a, at a level way beyond where most uh, prog musicians are, you need to be being diverse and, and fulfilling a, a lot of different functions. Uh, otherwise, you'll be really poor. <laughs> um, and, uh, and 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 that's it you know i mean obviously there's been with, with, with the number of people the tangent has been through in 20 years there are people who i didn't get on well with and there are people who who, who didn't like me too much you know um, that's 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 inevitable that that will happen but you know there's been the there's not there's not been much in the way of sort of like um, uh, you know sort of like horrible fallout really mm -hmm. yeah. and and essentially we've just been we've just kept going forward and um, the thing is is that a lot of this that we're talking about seems a long 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 time ago to me <laughs> now because this particular lineup of the band not counting Steve, who joined us in 2017, has been running since 2014. In fact, we started making the album that we made together, released in 2014. We started that in 2013, which is kind of like nine years ago. It's been me, Luke, Jonas and Theo. Yeah. And in 17, we had a Steve. Um, so the band's been... A pretty constant thing now um yeah. you know I don't, I don't have to wake up in the morning thinking who's the bass player at the moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah jonas is uh it's funny uh you when you called it a project it took me back to your rosfest performance because i clearly remember jonas referring it to to it as a project and then correcting himself and yes. saying, sorry, band, Andy, sorry, band. Yeah. Yeah, I meant band. <laughs> yeah, that was actually, yes, I have that on, I have that on, well, it's on, it, we've released that concert, of course. So yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, I, yeah, I remember that very well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the founder of this project or band, sorry, Andy, yeah, meant band. But I'm used to being in a lot of projects, so, you know, Mr. Andy Tillerson. But, you know, I think the thing is, is that this was always my intention. It was always quite important to me that the tangent was to be a band. Mm -hmm. And and I think that there was quite a lot of struggling to, 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 to get that feel for some time. But in the end, I kind of realised that we, we are a band. It's just that we're a very different kind of band. It's a different animal. Mm -hmm. We... We don't see each other. We don't live in each other's pockets. We don't even record together, you know? Yeah. And, of course, to a lot of people, they would say, well, that's not, it's not really a band then, is it? Well, it's a, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because we work together as if we were together. And 
if if you if you imagine um, if you imagine a recording as a sort of like a central core, which is where the production's taking place, this is not a case of a star system where I just produce some music and everybody sends in their bits and I decide what to do with it. This is a this is a it's more of a kind of procedure where I send them all the music and then people come back with ideas, but we make sure that people can react to each other um, so that not everything's all done at the same time, so that Jonas will play some of the songs with Luke playing. He, he will be able to hear Luke. Mm -hmm. Luke will have played those songs that Jonas could hear without being able to play, hear Jonas, but he will have been able to hear Steve. And, you know, I make sure that everybody's playing with somebody apart from me you know um somebody has to be the first of course i'll i'll give you that but <laughs> yeah and we also have this you know and the policy has been like this for years is that you know i don't I, i'm not a big razor blade person I'm, i don't sort of like cut people's work i don't say oh no you can't do that oh, i don't want that oh, i want that changing can you do this again all that kind of stuff i used to a long time ago but now I kind of think to myself, instead of doing the sort of like knee-jerk gut reaction where you just sort of like go, oh, I don't like that bit. And Jonas, can you do that bit again? I don't like that bit. Don't do that. Get used to what he did because he probably knows what he's talking about because he's a bloody great bass player. So, yeah. you know, I get used to these things. And, and then I start reacting and redoing my keyboards parts against what Jonas played. And, you know, that way we build up something because I, you know, I don't, I, I don't like being a, a trumpet blower or anything, but like, I think that one of the, the best things about the band is that we do manage to sound like we're together playing. Um, yeah. On most sure. of the records, you know, it sounds like we're in a room together and, and it took, a, you know, we've been perfecting that for 20 years. It's how we work. We mm -hmm. are a band, the tangent, um, and um, you know we might not see each other for years, but that's who, that's who we are. Yeah, yeah. It would be easy for the the complexity of the compositions you guys have. It would be easy to to have it fall apart if it you know if if it wasn't done right. And it does it like you mentioned. It does sound like it's all done in the same room with everybody playing off of one another. So you've obviously take a great deal of care, even though you're all working from your home studios in different countries all over Europe. Well, at the moment, there's only one person who's not living in Britain in the band, uh, you know, because uh, and that's Jonas, who's yeah. currently in Austria. For the past two albums, Steve's been here to record and recorded through that wall in what is actually Sally's Sally's wardrobe room. She has <laughs> her clothes in there, and. Uh, and basically, um, for the past two times, Steve just comes, sets his drum kit in there, and we just he records the drums, um, uh, literally um, six feet from where I'm sitting. Through that wall is where he played. Um, Theo, the same, he was through there as well. Luke did all his work in at uh, his home because he's got his own studio and all these amps and everything, and uh, gets his sound there. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know. Uh, Luke and I, you know, we talk just like you and I are talking now. I mean, you know, um, I mean, to, 
some of the people who say, oh, but that's not a real band. I mean, it's like saying that, that this isn't a real conversation. Of course, it's a real conversation. I'm talking to you. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm slightly embarrassed because, you know, I can't, I can't quite remember whether you're in Canada or the USA. Uh, but like, do you know what I mean? It's just one yeah. of those things. Um, all I know is it's a bloody long way away. And this is a conversation. So... Yeah. Why can't we be a band? <laughs> exactly. Hey, uh, and and it's it's Orlando, Florida, so it's the U.S. But uh, that's, that's okay. the USA. Okay. You, as, as as many of uh, as many demands as there are on your time, I'm sure that uh, you know it can be confusing. But uh, yeah, it is it is every bit as real. I'm, yeah, these are real conversations. <laughs> yes, they are absolutely. Yeah. So how is how does your approach to a new album begin? Do you, you're, I know you're probably always constantly working on songs. And I just wondered if when you start, do you start with a, a thought musically or a thought lyrically of what you want to say? Do you just take what you have and see how it fits together? Or is it a combination of that? It's, it's almost different every time, if you know what I mean? I mean, there are a number of key ways which happen a lot. Um, and one of which is I have my improvisation system here. It's a keyboard, yeah. Um, and it's a keyboard on which I can play a variety of instruments at the same time. And with my left hand, I can actually play bass and drums to an extent, yeah. And with my right hand, I can play organ, piano, Fender Rhodes, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I can improvise and just play away. Now, Although this isn't stuff I would want to release to anybody, because uh, you know, um, I I tend to record it, and there's hours and hours and hours of the stuff, um, and you know, and then of course I just, as I'm doing it, I kind of think this bit's quite good uh, that, that I'm doing here. I'm enjoying this, and I'll just find a bit, and I'll just go and that marks it. So I can come back to that and look at that a bit later on. I thought, yeah, there was a good bit there, Mark, Matt. And, <laughs> and that's that's one way. Uh, that's uh, quite a lot of that was done for the track on the new album called GPS Vultures. That one happened that way. Mm -hmm. The song The Changes, that was done sat in a valley. <laughs> you know, sort of like during the first lockdown experiencing the beautiful quiet of the world that had descended upon it and uh, uh, during the most beautiful spring I ever remember actually it was a very inspiring time so uh, I just knew I wanted to write this thing about about my feelings about lockdown and the people I was missing and the fact that I couldn't see my family and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. so I, I put a lot into that that and then I came back and sort of like I had these sort of like ideas of what I wanted to sing about. Obviously, I get the lyrical ideas and I think, okay, I want to write about this. But um, some time ago now, I uh, I stopped actually writing lyrics down because um, I noticed something, and, and and it was when I was doing the album Le Sacre de Travail uh, back in two thousand and thirteen. I, I found myself occasionally actually making the lyrics up as I sang. 
I was a bit inspired by by some of the freestyle rappers that you that you hear. I kind of think there's something there's something about that that works for me, uh, the way the rappers do it. And and I kind of thought, well, what is it exactly? What is it that's turning me on about the way that's happening? And and I think it's it's down to the fact that you know if you if you're reading something, you always sound different to how how you are if you're just speaking normally. And that, you know, I always used to like it when my mum told me stories and she wasn't reading from a book. Um, I always thought they were better. The fact is, is that if you write lyrics down, you're going to sing them differently and you're going to sing them as you sort of like think they ought to sound, you order them and you practice them. And think, oh, yeah. But in the end, the conviction that was there when you actually thought of the lyric isn't, isn't ever going to be the same. So, so uh, I'll, I'll, just, uh, I'll just make them up on the spot, which of course means... <laughs> Please do not think there's a, that I get them all right this time. You know, it means that I'm line by line. I'll be thinking, what can I sing here? And in the case of the changes, you know, I actually remember just singing, I wonder if I'll ever see those places and the photos in the box. And, and you know, there'd probably been a couple of attempts before that and they probably haven't been the same words, but that one, I just thought, ah, that's just, that's just right. That's exactly how I feel about it. I wonder if I will ever go back to these places I used to love and whether they're just going to stay as, you know, photos on my hard disk um, for the rest of time, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, how I, uh, that's how I put these things together, to be honest. Um, so uh, for this for this album, uh, uh, songs from the heart shoulder and for Auto Reconnaissance, which came the year the two years before that, and the and Proxy and uh, and <laughs> and the Slow Rust, all these albums, um, there's no bits of paper around the floor with my lyrics scrawled on them like they used to be. They all happen. The only mm -hmm. time <laughs> the only time they get written down is when. I, when uh, the record company said, right, okay, we need the lyrics. And oh, shit. I <laughs> sit there listening to the piece, typing it out. What did I say there? What's that? Oh, right, okay. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so, well, thank you for anticipating my next question because I was going to say, you know, how does, how, if you're doing this sort of freestyle, how does that all come about and get into the lyric sheet? So, so you actually do it yourself. Yeah, I have to just sit down and type it all out. Um, I have to listen to what I sang and just transcribe it on the, you know, and uh, fortunately I type pretty fast, so it's all yeah. right. <laughs> the, ch uh, the changes you just talked about. Up and down the street for hours, we can't find the If they put up a sign, well, they'd probably do well.
a little one of the things I always liked about the tangent songs is these stories always seem very autobiographical and I wondered how much do you take license with your own stories and embellish a little bit or is it all just very very much what happened like for example something like lost in london or uh, or the changes <laughs> yeah well i mean most of the stories uh they're all true mm -hmm. the, the thing is is that when you look at them when you actually analyze them they're quite banal really it's just that you have to i think that you know we're all good at something um you know, I've never considered myself to be a great singer, uh, but like I am quite good at making a very banal story <laughs> sound interesting. I mean, essentially, Lost in London is, you know, it's a it's a fairly down at heel, down down on my luck story. I, mm -hmm. I had to, I had to, I was going to see a record company in London. I decided to hitch a lift, uh, thumb a lift. I don't know how you say this in the States, but, you know, whether you even have it, but, like, you know, yeah. hitch a ride. Hitch, hitch a hike, ride. Yep. Boston said it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, so uh, you hitch a ride, and I hitched a ride from, from Leeds to London, which is 250 miles. Um, I thought I'd better set off early uh, to do it because it can sometimes take you ages. Uh, I got there, put my thumb out. The first lorry st stopped and took me straight into London. Uh, so I was there way, way early, but I was at the wrong side of London. And so I had to walk through London in the middle of the night to try to get to where I needed to be for the, uh, the meeting the next morning. Mm -hmm. And um, that was it. And I, I, you know, and I was just sort of like really relating my feelings, you know, uh, you know, I've always been a bit frightened of big cities and, you know, I'm a guy from a, a rural part of uh, of the country and there I am in the big city at night on my own looking at seeing, you know, homeless people, seeing all-night cafes at quarter past 11, all that kind of stuff uh, from the famous song Streets of London. And I walked past a few landmarks uh, and... You know, by mentioning the landmarks one after the other, London has loved it. Oh, yeah, he's singing about this. Just like, just like you know, I take inspiration quite a lot from you American guys and the Irish who like, who like singing songs which are just a list of places. You know, they, <laughs> you Americans and the Irish, they love it. You know, I saw the sunrise in Dublin, it sets on Galloway Bay, that kind of thing. And, and you guys are always saying, they're really rocking down in Boston, Pittsburgh, PA, <laughs> deep in the heart of Texas, down in New Orleans. And everybody's going, yeah, yeah, I mentioned my town. It's a, yeah. it's a guaranteed hit. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, do, I, I do that a little bit. So I mentioned um, all the different places in London I walked through and, uh, you know, it kind of, it kind of worked. It was, um, it was just a nice thing to do. So, yeah. you know, obviously any anecdote, <laughs> any anecdote that's told, it usually gets a little bit of embellishment on it. Sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, what do you want? Do you want shit stories or do you want good ones? <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the thing, isn't it? You yeah. know, I mean, uh, when they make a film about, uh, about something that happened in real life, um, you know, uh, they do all sorts of things to make it palatable, like make the person who it happened to look a lot more interesting than the person who it really did happen to. And yeah. uh, they get rid of a lot of the boring bits and, and stuff. Uh, so, you know, 
I, you know, I think the, the famous uh, Charlie Watts comment about, you know, when they said, well, what an amazing life you've lived and all that kind of stuff. He said, well, it's not been that fantastic. Most of it's about hanging around, you know, waiting for something to start. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but really what you actually want to do is just go with the story. So you just keep the bits, keep it moving. And that's, that's what I try to do. Yeah. yeah. So for something that's in second person, like a song like In Earnest. A gentle old man sits alone in the dark. He's scanning the waves, looking for memories he can share. His correspondents collect him like stamps. Adding his call sign to the trophies and maps And none of them wonder just who it is they're talking to And none of them think to ask the kind of man he was I was a pilot in a war long ago and it all seemed to matter way back then. So is that some? Is that about someone you met or someone you met that was, you know, just in hung Ernest, out down the pub kind of thing? In Ernest, a completely true story. Yeah. Um, uh, Ernest is a guy I knew. Um, I, I'm a radio ham or CBA, uh, as you as you might, um, and. Uh, I met I met Ernest on 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 the radio. I would I joined a club he was a member of, so I got to know him in person. Mm -hmm. He was a guy. He was he was beginning to suffer from uh, Alzheimer's or dementia of some sort when I first knew him, and gradually his conversation got more and more and more restricted to one area of his life. And of course, then we got to this point where he could only remember the war, and um, now at the same time. Obviously, being a radio amateur, there were a lot of other people his age on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to combine three characters into one. Uh, so Ernest was the guy I knew and could actually visualize and shake his hand and talk to him and buy him a pint. Uh, but there was another guy I used to talk to. And as a matter of fact, he was one of the dambusters. He was actually one of the guy. In fact, he was the guy who dropped the bomb on the Sopa Dam and it didn't go off, right? Um, okay. And uh, he spent his whole life regretting that. And uh, then the, the other guy I knew was actually, and apparently as rare as rocking horse shit, as they, as they say over here, a <laughs> very, very rare guy in that he was actually in the Luftwaffe. Um, hmm. And uh, apparently... You know, there's hardly any of them left uh, because they just got annihilated at the end of the war. So I'd have these conversations with these people and, you know, and, and I kind of, I wanted to write about the service they gave and, and how, how, much, uh, how much appreciation I think is due to them. Um, and... Um, and, and 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 how so many of us kind of we only want to see Tom Cruise flying that plane. We don't want to see the old bald guy who 
was nearly 90 or anything like that anymore. You know, we're not mm -hmm. interested in, we just need a young person to take his place because, you know, we, we just let people get old and, and we stop being interested in them once they've stopped being beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that's what that song was about. He got forgotten and, you know, and I, and I saw him being pushed around in a bar by uh, some young guys and, uh, I had to, I, you know, I did. I, I went and said, so "Have you any idea that that guy flew fighter planes in the war?" <laughs> you know, it's like uh, I said, "You've seen Top Gun, haven't you?" And they said, "Yeah." And so, well, you know, he was one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so don't, don't push him about at the bar. I think they told me to, you know, um, <laughs> as people just do in this world these days, you know, just don't get lost. Yeah, um, but you know that that was a that it was it was an important story. It's just you know I, I I knew him and you know what when when you're given when you when you're a musician you're looking for the source of your own inspiration and and somebody like Ernest comes along it's a sort of like you know that's it you you, you have to seize the moment and go for it so yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say that's one of my favorites uh, in the Tangent catalog. So thank you for that one. Of course, like it has a sequel, as you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, on the uh, Down and Out in Paris and London, the last five minutes of the song, um, um, uh, Where Are They Now? Which, of course, is about Ernest and what happened to him and the fact that since I'd written that song, he died and uh, they'd found him in his bathtub. Uh, three days after he died, um, mm. uh, after you know, and, and, it, and it, it, it's just a a horrible thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, the the the, the, the dam buster had had this epiphany. You see, um, he'd uh, he'd not he'd not died, um, and he'd ended up um, he'd had ended up going back to the Sorper Dam for a Channel Five in the UK documentary about. And they'd taken him back to the place which he'd failed to blow up and introduced him to all the people, all the families who'd lived because his bomb didn't go off. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. changed him. It yeah. changed him after so many years of his life. For 60 years, all they'd done is regret that his bomb didn't go off. Yeah. And then suddenly he met these people, this whole families, grandchildren of people who've been born since since uh you know because his bomb didn't go off yeah. <laughs> what a story yeah. you know I, I thought well we've got to have part two of Ernest, and uh, that's where that happened yeah, yeah that's amazing that's great the tangents uh well the first album the first song that the changes is uh you start out by talking about a a gig where you didn't get paid. Would you like to shame the the the, uh, the venue that didn't pay you guys? No, <laughs> no, no. I mean, like uh, they would just spoil it. Everybody. <laughs> no, I mean that, that that's it. it uh, you know, I'm not into uh, I'm not into naming and shaming. Or yeah, anything, yeah. So uh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, uh, you know, it's. <laughs> uh, I was on the night. I can tell you. I was, <laughs> on the yeah. night, I'd like to have. Um, I'd like to have throttled the guy, but like uh, in the end, the guy supports Prague, you know, mm -hmm. and um, he was having a difficult time. 
Yeah. And uh, we've all been there. Afford, he, he couldn't afford to pay us. And um, yeah, we were a bit, we're a bit pissed, but like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in, in the end, um, he's still putting gigs on. Yeah. And, well, that's um, good. Let's, let's, let's hope he is still putting gigs on. Uh, yeah. in 10 years time so yeah but yeah that's one of those things we did a gig and we didn't get paid and <laughs> we ended up laughing so that's good a lot of people i'm sure a lot of people have been there especially in the prog world of um, course, yeah. luke's guitar tone um on this album is was i'm assuming all of this was his choice but i mean he sounds like he's channeling his inner alan holdsworth on this album Yeah, I, like I wouldn't like to. Uh, I wouldn't like to put words in his mouth or anything like that. I mean, Luke is um, force of nature. I think is probably the uh, is the best the best way of describing it. Um, I have absolutely no idea how <laughs> how he got it or anything. Uh, but uh, you know, the guy's just got melody and and music running through his veins like uh, you know like a river it's he, he can uh, he's got a, a, a fabulously wide um, musical inspiration set as it were mm -hmm. um, which of course i really like because you know i have a very wide musical uh, set of tastes that spans everything from funk disco jazz rock punk rock, thrash metal, death metal, classical music, uh, you know, uh, and, ele and dark electronica and stuff. I absolutely have spent a lifetime enjoying music, and Luke is doing the same thing. Uh, um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, his tone, uh, he, he, Alan Holdsworth is certainly a major influence on him, uh, uh, but, uh, you, you know, there's times when you hear Jeff Beck, who, interestingly, I'm going to see live tomorrow. Um, oh, nice. Looking forward to that. And, um, and I've only just found out that I'm going, so I'm really, really chuffed. Uh, so, um, Jeff Beck's another one, of course, that is his longtime favourite, Francis Dunnery, out of uh, It Bites. Yep. Um, and, um, 
you know, the guy's out of Dream Theater, Daniel Gildenlow. But at the same time, he's really into he's really into sort of like new soul music, um, uh, and you know, funky funky playing and you know, Wes Montgomery. You know, Luke's there if it's got a guitar attached to it. Luke's Luke's interested. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Luke is Luke is really interested in guitar. Um, and you know, for the first couple of years of knowing him, it was actually difficult to actually speak to him without him actually having a guitar around his neck. He just used to have it all around his neck all the time. And you know, uh, sometimes when he took it, it was like me taking my glasses off. You go, oh, that's different. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, he he would just um, if I pick up a guitar, right, and I and I am. Um, a less than good guitar player. <laughs> if I pick up a guitar and start to play it, Luke's immediately, you know, he's watching. Yeah. Because Luke, Luke knows that, like, that however crap I may be, I might have something that he can learn from. Um, you know, even if it's a case of, oh, I see what he's trying to do, but I, you know, I could do it, uh, and like you know, that's that's a, that's a really you know somebody who's always learning um, is is totally on my uh, on, on my wavelength because I always consider myself to be learning um, and will be until I, until uh, until they nail my coffee shut, as it were. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what struck me about his Alan Holdsworth tone. Was mm -hmm. that the fact that you guys have done a UK cover on this album? You've done four originals, and yeah. the In the Dead of Night uh, UK cover, and it's it's it was interesting to me because you have you managed to take a progressive rock classic and make it even longer, which is unusual. <laughs> Obviously, uh, we knew that we, we knew uh, in the dead of night as being quite a long piece in itself, um, and uh, in multiple sections, mm -hmm. and we decided to to do it the original song, but we decided we would write our own intermediate sections to it. You know what the tangent would have done in the middle, rather than UK, mm -hmm. and uh, and. Uh, that was that. It's it from our point of view. This is quite interesting because you know we've made eleven albums without doing a cover version. Um, the only cover versions we've ever released have been sort of live versions and things like that. But right. this is an actual out-and-out -out cover version. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was also it started off because I got asked to do one for an Italian um, uh, Italian John Wetton tribute CD. 
um, which uh, I've done my own solo version of In the Dead of Night for that. Mm -hmm. um, it's called uh, it's called Celebrating the Dragon, and uh, yeah, there's a quite a lot of Italian artists on it, and a few other nations represented. And I, as I say, I did this uh, solo version of In the Dead of Night, and then we just thought, well, let's take that, let's tangent it, and um, and, and, and expand it to be a longer piece. And uh, yeah, it worked. It worked really nicely, I think. Uh, and so that, yeah, although it's a cover version, we also have our own bit of it that we wrote. So it's, we're putting a bit of ourselves into it. Uh, so that, that seems to be a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good to put, to put your stamp on a cover rather than just doing a straight cover is, is always, I think, preferable for, for most people, you don't. You can go to the original if you want to hear the original. You you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to go looking for a new version of the same old song. You if you want something a little different, then you listen to the cover version. Yeah, that's yeah. So GPS vultures, the name obviously a play on GPS culture. was a, a song as i understand it this came about as a sort of a variation on a theme from the original uh yeah it's a variation um so i've just got a slightly hair in my eyes yeah. <laughs> uh yeah um it's just a classical variation sort of like uh, in terms of uh, it's a uh, I'm sorry, I've said this in another interview as well. I've talked, there's a lot of things that I've said in other interviews, but <laughs> like, um, how do I describe it? Yeah, it's like it's like building a new house with the same Lego. Uh, um, so essentially, I used some of the same shapes, some of the same structures, and then made a completely different piece out of it. Uh, and uh, you can hear little light motifs from the original uh, GPS uh, culture popping in now and then, but for the most, for the most part, it's a, it's a, it's a brand new piece. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it does show that, you know, an idea can go in so many different directions uh, that one can turn into a, essentially a quite poppy prog song. Um, you know, because that's one of our most accessible and recognisable tunes. It's the mm -hmm. sort of song that we, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, we have to have it ready to play when we when we when we're doing gigs. <laughs> um, and um, 
And of course, uh, the GPS vultures is a completely wild instrumental um, that uh, that's more, you know, I mean, uh, I don't I don't like uh, comparing myself with sort of like major legends too much, but you know, it's it's more it's more in the kind of like zapper um, area than it is in in my uh, songwriting mode. You see what I mean? It's more of a it's more of a sort of musical fireworks display, I think. Really. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the lady tied to the lamppost. A very striking imagery uh, in the lyrics, and seems to be, you know, another a bit of autobiographical piece. Um, and it's the it's the it's the long centerpiece song on the album, full of long centerpiece songs on the album. But uh, tell me a little bit about this composition. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that technically this is a very similar animal to the song that you liked before in earnest mm -hmm. um, but this is you know this is another person i met this is a it's a it's a chance meeting which lasted less than five minutes probably um on my way home from a, a christmas party um with the college where i used to do a little bit of teaching now and then um I'd, uh, I'd be on my way back. I was on my way back from this Christmas party in Leeds, and it was a very, very cold night. And I found a woman tied to the lamppost. Um, you know, uh, I almost tripped over her, and uh, she asked me if she could uh, have some money, and I didn't have any because I was just carrying a card and everything. I offered her a cigarette and uh, she told me a little bit about how she'd come to be there and why she was tied to the lamppost. And she was tied to the lamppost so she didn't fall over and bang her head like she had done a few nights before. So it was an absolute freezing cold night. And you know, I sympathised with her, gave her a cig pattern. She, she did mention that, you know, only a few weeks earlier she'd had a job and everything. And, uh, you know, and... And and I, and I went home and I, and I kind of and I wanted to write about her. And then and then I, I, you know whilst I was thinking about I want to write about her, I I, I just suddenly had this sort of like moment where I just oh, Andy, what the fuck will that do for her? You know, you going home and writing a song and being all sort of like goodies gold and bono about it. You know, and uh, and. You know, the, and the fact is that I, I did write that song, and eventually, you know, that came out in the lyrics. That you know, I was just singing it out, and it came out. You know, somewhere on my way home, I was thinking of music and lyrics, not her anymore. You know, yeah. Um, you know, like some people will come back and say, "Oh, that'll make a great documentary." What she needs is isn't a great documentary. <laughs> She doesn't need a, a songwriting about her. And she won't feel any, she won't even know that this has happened. Um, but uh, what we need to do is, is solve that problem. And you see, I, I think that, you know, sometimes I do get a bit hammered by uh, people for, for having politics in my music. Um, some people don't like it. I don't know whether you're one of them or not, but like it doesn't matter whether whether people don't like me and politics. It always seems to me that that 
that usually it's when, when I'm talking about politics that they're not necessarily in agreement with. For example, a whole lot of people really do like it when I sing about uh, an old war hero who's been neglected and allowed to, uh, you know, that, that's something that they really want to be on side with. But not necessarily with a young, with a young lady who's tied to a lamppost in, in Leeds in the rain, you know. Um, whereas to me, both of their stories are, are worth, are worth uh, mentioning and, and writing about. Uh, you know, the same thing with uh, on the album that we made, uh, Slow Rust of Forgotten Machine. I mean, you see a bit of the, uh, the artwork just up there on the, on yeah. the wall. Um, you know, when I was singing about the people on little boats escaping from Europe, trying to get to England, you know, uh, on, on, on rubber dinghies, you know, uh, that didn't obviously, you know, that seemed like a very leftist message to a lot of people, whereas Ernest, the guy who was the, you know, the fighter pilot, seemed a little bit more, you know, <laughs> okay to like that. Um, but I just see them as all being stories of neglect and um, and that uh, you know uh, things that moved me. And that's 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 all I can do is sing about things that move me. I'm not a politician in any yeah. way, and nothing I write about is anybody's policy. <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, so there's nothing really much to fear from me, whether you're on the left or the right of politics. But you know, I'll, I'll just have my say and comment. Uh, one of the things that's always amazed me is that the people who are most likely to dislike me having politics in music are, strangely enough, Americans. Uh, <laughs> and this perplexes me because you have the best political protest writers in the world, ban on. Yeah, you know, you're absolute experts at writing political songs, and there's nobody to touch you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so why I, I occasionally do get these people on prog rock forums to say, "Oh yeah, Andy Tillerson, it's good music, but I can't do with all that politics." <laughs> How did you manage with Bob Dylan and Journey <laughs> and Bruce <laughs> uh, and all those guys and John Cougar Mellencamp and all all those people who who who, who were a right stand up for the common man kind of thing? I, uh, yeah. To me, it's not even it's not even it's not even a political message. It's a, it's the, you write a lot of, uh, or you've written several songs about people who just have fallen through societal cracks and it's, there's no, you don't even know their politics. You don't, I mean, this is just, this is just a fact of life is that, is that some people fall outside of, of society and they find the holes in society and, and, and then people just ignore them and, and and just assume that they'll go away and oh i i saw this person but uh now they're out of my sight they're out of my mind kind of thing i, I don't even think it's a political um, message at all it's just a human message yeah i think that you know uh one of the things that really when i got into thinking more about the situation obviously you know everybody who feels something for a homeless person has this moment where they put themselves in their situation. So could that happen to me? And of course, like the fact is, is that I know it can happen to me because for a very short period of time, it actually did. And so um, 
I actually know what it's like to be in the centre of town, in the cold, with nowhere to go for several nights. And the feeling that you have as the night falls is one of terrible foreboding. Um, and uh, those nights last for ever man you know they just they just last forever mm -hmm. and uh, it's really horrible and uh, I, I did write about this subject once before in 2010 uh, with on the album uh, 2009 on the album down and out in paris and london mm -hmm. um where i was writing from the point of view of being on the hotel I was actually staying in a hotel. I'd been paid to go there by Inside Out. It was a beautiful hotel. It was overlooking the Place de la Garde Nord, which is a beautiful place. Um, and uh, and I, I opened my balcony and I looked down on the square and I thought, less than six months ago, I was sleeping in a sleeping bag there. <laughs> you know? And I thought, there's, there's this line, isn't there? You know, you just... You just cross this line and suddenly you go from being someone to being nobody simply by a fact of what your bank account says about you on that particular day. Um, which is why we get the line in the song that we live our lives as avatars of our accounts, you know. Um, uh, accounts that bear our name are out there in the world and they're the important things and we're just the avatars of them now you know we're just a little picture the profile picture of our <laughs> bank account yeah. and uh, you know um in the end uh, me keeping my bank account in a in a in a, in a balance that is reasonably happy that the, the people that the computers at the bank are really happy about means I can stay in this room and be warm and talk to you and make music. But all it takes is for that flag to go up and say, this guy's not keeping up with his bills. This guy's not a good credit risk, this guy. And then suddenly everything closes down and they send somebody and evict me, you know? And that essentially is what happened to the lady tied to the lamppost, you know, that things closed down on her. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, to, to my mind, it's a, it's a, it's a big, pro, it's, it's one of the biggest things to, 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 to be annoyed about is homelessness because, you know, there are an awful lot of really huge problems in this world. Yeah, really enormous problems. Um, climate being just one of them and, uh, you know, wars and everything like that. And that, that are so, so complex and difficult to do. But hopelessness, but by comparison, it's, a, it's an absolute, it's a doddle to solve it, you know. Mm -hmm. All you need is cash. That's it. Cash will solve it. Yeah? It will solve it. You just, you just pay for this to stop. There are things that you can't stop with money, but homelessness is something you can stop with money. Um, and, you know, I mean, like I, I think I, I read somewhere that, you know, Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter for a certain amount of cash, well, that cash could have rid the world of homelessness forever, you know. You think, wow. You know, why just why can't we just solve this? Why do we just why is it so easy? Oh dear, I'm to have I stopped everything? 
No, you. I can hear you. I think uh, okay, yeah, camera just, just went off. Right, there okay. you're back. There you are. Yeah. Um, why is it so easy to leave these people behind on the streets every night? You know. Um, yeah. When and there's what? there's of course the there's of course the the people who think that it's somehow that person's fault uh, that they're there. And if they would just work a little harder and, and get a job and this and that, then they'd be fine and they would you know, be able to rejoin society. But uh, having been laid off multiple times myself, I can tell you that sometimes things happen and it, it, there's nothing you can control about. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Um, doesn't matter how, uh, you know, how much you are contributing to your company. Um, things happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, I was aware when I was in the States last, um, I was in Colorado, and uh, there were quite a lot of, there were quite a lot of um, uh, homeless guys there, and they, they had signs, and a lot of them were sort of like, their sign was full of information about the fact that they, I am a hard worker, I do this, I was made, I was made, this company closed down and I became unemployed, you know. And, and I kind of thought it's, it's uh, that is rather demeaning to have to, to have to be in a situation where you say, I am available for work. I am, I was working. I, I am a decent member of society. Um, um, you know, as if somehow or other, you know, well, because other people will just assume you are some kind of layabout if you if you're just sitting by the street asking for money. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, it upsets me and it, it it bothers me a lot. You know, yeah. um, but as I say, I think the reason why it does bother me is because I had that uh, very brief experience of it um, yeah. during a during a difficult part of my own life, um, and uh, I don't want it to happen again. You know. Yeah, there, there before the grace of God go I. <laughs> Absolutely, that's a, that's an important phrase. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the album closes with "Wasted Soul," or at least uh, as far as the uh, the original is concerned. Do you remember how you came up with this one? Where did the germ from this started? Well, I, you know, I was just sort of playing about. There's nothing quite like a new instrument to inspire you from time to time. And uh, I just got this particular set of patches uh, for the synthesizer that sounded like horns. And, uh, you know, I thought, I want to do something, you know, with the horns. And I've always just loved that 
big old sort of tamala sound. Um, okay. You know, I'm kind of I, that particular that that big brassy period when Ike and Tina Turner were recording in a studio with a massive band all playing live and everything, and uh, that kind of that kind of vibe, the Phil Spector vibe, um, and you know, uh, the Tangents done this kind of stuff right since the third album. You know, the third album we finished off with a disco song, um, and. Uh, which was called "The Sun in My Eyes," and we've we've had we've had rock songs, punk songs, uh, uh, you know, straightforward out and out funk pieces, dance tunes, and everything. And um, you know, I think that occasionally, sort of like showing, uh, occasionally showing that you do think outside the prog box from time to time. I think that's 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 an important thing to do uh i think i think that you know when when you when you're going back to uh the first generation of bands who started playing what we call prog rock now the, the people like the nice yes and pink floyd king crimson of course you know they they'd reached this point in the in the late 1960s and around them was a whole load of music that they were taking influence from and you know they were taking influence from the pop charts and the beatles were in the pop charts you know and they were listening to the beatles and they were listening to the stones and they were probably listening to tamla motown too and they were they were listening to television theme tunes and uh, film soundtracks and jazz and all that kind of stuff. And they whipped all this together and, and created what's kind of what we call prog rock now. Mm -hmm. And they also did something which, which is, I think, is sadly missing from a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the scene today. They, they didn't listen to each other a lot. We don't listen to each other as much as we used to. You know, they were always in each other's pockets, thinking, "What, what are King Crimson up to? I better go and check them out. You know, have they got any new ideas with Nick? You know that kind of stuff." Um, nowadays, I'm not entirely sure that uh, you know members of my contemporary bands even know what I'm doing. You know, uh, uh, I've got no idea whether they listen to it or not. I listen to them, <laughs> but I don't believe they listen to me. Uh, <laughs> So that we, we, you know, we do draw on the music that's around us now. We don't just go back and look and, and see which prog bands do we like that we can use as part of our influences. We look at the whole thing. Sure. Um, because, you know, we're writing this music now. Um, this music is not being written... 50 years ago it's being written now and there's 50, half a century of musical development happened since yes made close to the edge in 72 isn't it 50 years ago and look at all the stuff that's happened and you know we want to celebrate that and include it in our mixing in our mix pot as well you know 
Yeah. And for that reason, you know, we've got guys in the band who are half my age, you know, um, and, uh, you know, who weren't, who weren't, who weren't born when I first started playing music and writing music myself, you know, some of them weren't born. Well, one of them particularly wasn't <laughs> born. <laughs> and some of them were very young. So there you yeah. go. All right. Um, I'm glad you brought up uh, the sun in my eyes because I, again, one of my favorite tangent songs and I love the way you worked uh, the yes lyrics, new Somme de Soleil into it. It's uh <laughs> There's a nice little, nice little touch there. And I love that you've brought up multiple times, you've brought up disco, uh, which will make a certain type of prog fan grumble a little bit. But uh, I mean, it's it was popular for a reason. It was popular for several years and it was a, a genre of music that, like any other genre, there was good and bad in, in that genre of music. And, and some of the good stuff was quite good. To, 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 to be kind of a bit old-fashioned and possibly <laughs> a bit politically incorrect, um, I would argue that if, if you were old enough to have been listening to prog rock when it's during its heyday, then disco, funk, and all that sort of stuff was by nature part of the soundtrack of your musical life, you know. I mean, so... It, it, you know, if you happen to be, you know, really digging um, uh, the snow goose uh, when that first came out, you know, the chances are that, you know, the same day you played the snow goose, you'd also hear on the radio, you'd hear a boogie nights by heatwave or, um, you know, one of Rob Temperton's songs or one of, you know, on, on the Michael Jackson first solo albums or the, the, the Jackson five stuff. This was part of the, and, I'll guarantee <laughs> round about that time, quite a lot of us guys um, had our first kiss. And I'll bet you it wasn't a Starship Trooper. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think that first kiss might have been in Heatwave or the Bee Gees or uh, or um, you know some other music than prog would have been playing. And uh, I think that sometimes you know, I've been just as guilty of it as anybody else. Sometimes we need to just just release it and just be a little bit less serious about our music. Yeah, we all love prog rock, but it doesn't mean that all of the musical forms are, are rubbish. Uh, you know, um, the, the pop music has brought me so much pleasure over the years. Um, and... Uh, and for me, it was like magic experiencing pop music through the eyes of my daughter. Um, my son actually was was really cool because he got into stuff like Radiohead and Muse and um, and Oasis and things, which I was able to immediately recognise as a that's rock and roll, you know. And Radiohead's kind of prog and uh, all that. That was really good. But the joy of my my daughter's love for the Spice Girls and S Club 7 and, uh, you know, all, the, all that wonderful 90s pop music, which I really do like. Um, you know, it was fantastic for me. Um, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> and I've got Spice Girls, greatest hits, and I've got all the S Club 7 stuff, and uh, I put it on, it always makes me feel good. So, <laughs> you know, um, 
And, you know, that's all I'm asking music to do is to make me feel good most of the time. Yeah, and of course, you know, Spice Girls doesn't take me away on that story, but it does make me feel, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a few minutes, it, yeah. It does yeah. something, changes your mood. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite song on Songs from the Hard Shoulder? On how, uh, I don't think so, no. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some moments in the album where I kind of think, yeah, that's right. I think, you know, I, I really rate um, Luke's guitar solo in the changes at the end of it. I think that's a, a really splendid, up, uplifting moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that, that took quite a lot of working out how we wanted to do it because, you know, uh, I wanted this song to stay quite definitely in the world of progressive rock music it was definitely the album's big progger as it were but at the same time i wanted that end to have the same feel as a really uplifting piece of ibiza trance music you know i wanted to be able to see in my own mind thousands of young people dancing underneath the stars you know like on the adulthood lie that we did on proxy i wanted it to feel i wanted it to feel like a a rave but i wanted it to sound like prog and and and, and it happened it, i think it worked i think it worked uh, you mm -hmm. can you can disagree with me if you like everybody but <laughs> i i um i think it works i think it sounds like uh i think it sounds like a a rave being played by a prog band and uh more of that should happen yeah <laughs> is uh is there a tour planned for this uh no no. Uh, essentially, um, I haven't quite got out of uh, out of out of my COVID shell yet. Um, I, I live in a very remote place. Um, basically, uh, I, I live um, one thousand three hundred feet above sea level on the top of a moor, uh, which is a very bleak place. Um, in fact, uh, they used it as the set for Wuthering Heights. When they made the movie, you know, and they needed a bleak, cold place. Well, that's where I live. <laughs> Crazy. Um, and uh, during lockdown, of course, there's nobody came here. We were just on our own for, for yonks. Um, we got a couple of neighbors dotted about, but, um, you know, we, we've hardly seen anybody. And I think that. You know, the idea of getting the band together again right now is the tangent couldn't afford to have a gig cancelled. If we get a gig cancelled, it's like, you know, for some artists, it's, oh, shit, no gig. Oh, right, okay. Oh, we lose a bit of money on that one. Well, for us, you know, the, you know <laughs> a bank account will go ding, 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 and I'll be on the street. You know, I can't, I can't have a risk a gig getting cancelled because mm -hmm. it costs a lot of money to do it. Sure. Um, and uh, uh, of course, the other thing is, is that, you know, Jonas is currently well ensconced in the middle of a major world tour with Steve Hackett. Um, and uh, Luke's been playing with Karnataka. And uh, Theo's still out with Soft Machine. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just at home uh, <laughs> writing the next Tangent album, and uh, which... Uh, you know, because it's like it's a never ending cycle, um, you know, because I, I don't write uh, like Neil Morse with 
tons and tons and tons of stuff uh it, it just takes me all the time that between now and the next tangents album to being released in a couple of years it'll take me all that time to put it together so, yeah, yeah I'm very... i don't think many people are as prolific as neil is <laughs> yeah uh, so neil and Royner and everything like yeah. i'm not as prolific as them i mean yeah i've got a, a lot of albums out but that's by by virtue of the fact that i've never stopped working on them since 2002 there's always been one on the table on the cooker on the front ring you know occasionally it gets put on the back ring whilst i do something else but it's uh, it's there all the time yeah andy is there a place where people can buy the album that is is more beneficial to the band than say going on amazon oh i'm so glad you asked <laughs> yes of course uh, there's our there's the tangents website which is um www.thetangent.org um you know uh, just put tangents in the tangent into google and i think we're the first result most of the time so uh, that would be um that would be great if you bought it from us um if you are in the states it means it will arrive considerably later than it would if you bought it off amazon there but uh it does help us more you know um besides which uh once it's been released if you do buy it from us we'll be sending you the download so you can hear it straight away so um you know that's uh that's uh, we don't. But in the end, if you buy our records from anywhere, we we're we're grateful whether you buy them in America, whether you buy them here. Um, we're less keen on Spotify than some people. Um, I don't like that organization um, personally, uh, but um, we're on there too. If uh, if that's your bag, yeah. So, so check it out. It's uh, called Songs from the Hard Shoulder. Came out June tenth and. Uh, Annie, it's been great talking to you about this record. Um, people can go to your, I believe you guys have a Facebook uh, page and your website to find out more information on this. Yep, of course. The website's got all the info. Facebook page has got all the info. Um, and uh, yeah, we, um, <laughs> we're not, not very good at marketing and all this. I'm not a businessman at all. I'm a music guy. So uh, when it comes to the business, uh, I start running out of things to say because, uh, you know, um, obviously the record company Inside Out, they, uh, they, they've got all this sort of thing in hand. I just, I just do what I'm told, make the records. That's, there you go. Uh, Take care of the music. Every, every, you got other people dealing with the, the other stuff. Andy Perfect. Tillerson of The Tangent. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. It's been great talking to you, and I wish you nothing but the best of luck with the album. Well, that's been absolutely my pleasure, my friend. Uh, so thank you so much, and I hope uh, I hope uh, the, uh, the your shows and your, your website uh, goes from strength to strength. And I mean it quite honestly when I say that um, I've always considered that the people who uh, do the infrastructure of discussing and promoting progressive rock music around the world uh, without them none of this would have happened there would have been no third and fourth waves of progressive rock music people like yourself and um, you know going right back to delicious agony and all all, all all these people who've been running for so long have kept this music going so i i really appreciate it and i'm sure everybody else does but <laughs> that's it you know sometimes we forget to say but there you go all right all right, Michael. So it's been a real right pleasure talking to you, my friend, from here in Yorkshire. And uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I wish you well. 
All right. Thank you, sir. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.